0: Thanks for tuning in to the inaugural episode of the New Chicago Way podcast. It's a compliment to our book, The New Chicago Way, Lessons from Other Big Cities. I'm Austin Berg, one of the book's co-authors, and much like we did in our book on this podcast, my co-author, Ed Backrack and I will be outlining stories from Chicago history, will be dissecting their origin and governance, and seeking the reforms from other big cities that Chicago needs to build a better future for itself. We'll have the help too of many esteemed guests and experts who joined our show and helped us with the book to discuss some of the city's most pressing issues and their potential solutions. In each episode we're going to cover a different aspect of city government just like the chapters in the book and on this installment we're tackling one that is unfortunately always relevant in Chicago and that's corruption. Ed and I discuss how the city can get past its corrupt reputation and we get terrific insight From the city's chief watchdog, Inspector General Joe Ferguson. But first, we'll set the stage for you. What really is corruption, and how does it impact Chicago? I wanted Ed to talk, Ed, for you to talk a little bit about the prevailing political theory of Chicago that you've talked about a lot. And it's a a three-step, it's a three-step theory.
1: Sure. If you talk to anybody about the government in Chicago, and as we were writing this book, people would say, well, it's real simple, what's going on. Everybody's corrupt and nothing can be done about it. So they throw up their hands and they say it's hopeless. And so that is the prevailing theory in Chicago. As we dug into it in the book, we found out it's a lot more complicated and if you look at what other cities do, you find that there's a lot that we can do about it that, that are involve the nuts and bolts of governance structure.
0: And we talk a little bit about corruption. People aren't even really, it's a bucket term. And it's a kind of a red herring, I think, is what we learned a lot in the book for, well, if something's wrong with Chicago, it must be corruption. And the problem with that is, even if it is, it's not di- actually diagnosing the problem, and then the solution isn't very clear. So I'm curious what your your thoughts are on that. It's sort of a a throwaway
1: term. Yes, uh, you'll hear a lot about that, not only in this podcast, but in future podcasts. But the narrow definition of corruption is when a public official does something that is illegal for their personal gain. But you could also define it more broadly, where they do something that is perfectly legal. And where they have some other broader political or economic self-interest uh involved. And so I think a lot of Chicagoans conflate the two and they make everything corruption. But the the book is based upon enormous poor decisions that have really sunk the city of Chicago for for decades. And uh, those things were perfectly legal. So the book, uh, a portion of it is to attack the narrowly defined corruption, which is really nickel and dime stuff. It's it's sofa change compared to the cost of the big decisions that have really sunk the city.
0: And we've seen that in the, the massive scandal that broke uh, in December of 2018, the longest serving alderman in history, Ed Burke, being charged with essentially shaking down. A Burger King restaurant owner. It wasn't for millions of dollars. It's for you know relatively little money given how much money that guy has in, in his campaign funds. And what's really interesting about that story is in the wake of that massive scandal and the political debates that have followed, we've heard a lot about new leadership in the 14th Ward, new leadership on the finance committee where Ed Burke was, was chairman. We have seen some discussion of Aldermanic privileges have been fantastic not the sexiest of topics but has been discussed a lot more recently and i think one of the coolest things we found in the book to talk about corruption generally is that the studs turkle quote which we open that chapter with is that chicago is not the most corrupt american city it's the most theatrically corrupt and the data point to that if we look at so we looked at per capita public corruption convictions actually across the top 15 US cities and we looked at over the last 10 years and if you are just vaguely aware of Chicago media you would think Chicago was far and away the highest of that list but the top of the list over the last 10 years per capita is Philadelphia. Oh, we must be number 2. No, nope. San Antonio. Number 3 is Austin, number 4 is Dallas, and Chicago is all the way down at number 5. Not, you know, it's not glowing by any means. But it's not the, you know, lawless shakedowns aren't, aren't aren't rampant. The problem is it might not be broadly the most corrupt city, but our city council is certainly the most corrupt. And, and that comes down to the structure, which we talk about a lot in the book. And Ed, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of our city council structure and how it encourages so many of them going to prison eventually.
1: Yes. So the city council really, uh, in the role of the alderman, is designed for corruption and designed for illegal activity that will lead to some kind of a conviction. Uh, And what do we mean by this? This means that so many local decisions are in the hands of the alderman, and all that they have to drive to guide them is the self-interest of their constituents. So it's they need money to rent for office. Uh, they need to get things done in their ward and so that's how that's how the corruption takes place.
0: And their wards are so small mm-hmm. that they can be that that intake point. It's only around 55,000 people right. per, per ward. And some of the tasks when we talk about mm-hmm. local tasks, valet parking, you you have to get your alderman to sign off on that. Any building permit, any sidewalk cafe, any awning, any sign, all rezoning, they're the administrative bottleneck point for that. And of course, that's going to invite corruption. When someone is able to stand between you and something as simple as a sign, and they're an elected official, you almost wouldn't expect anything else. But one of the best people who we did we spoke with for this book and really gets the structural issue, I think more than any other elected official in Chicago is is Inspector General Joe Ferguson. He's the chief watchdog of the city. We sat down with him to talk about Chicago corruption. General Joe Ferguson thank you very much for joining us today on the inaugural episode of the New Chicago Way podcast we're so glad you can make time to come down here delighted to be here so I thought we could discuss a question that Ed brought up right before you got here was how do we define corruption because a lot of these events that we've been talking about the book at people tend to chalk up all of the city's problems to corruption but they're, they might not be clear about what that is. So what's your definition of corruption?
2: Depends on the day of the week. Um, and and you've identified one of the key problems here is how we as a sort of a, a civic body, um, a society define corruption. And we come at it lots of different ways. For a lot of elected officials, particularly here in Chicago, corruption is equated with um, the line between what is legal and illegal. And the unique characteristics of this community, this city, this state is not what goes on that's illegal. There's always going to be illegality, but it's what goes on that's perfectly legal that doesn't seem right. There's a lot of that that goes on that we also define as corruption. And in between is often where investigations are are occurring. It's where those that are sort of more ambitious and aggressive in terms of utilizing the system to their personal benefit, but Keeping one toe on the safe side of the line, that's where a lot of the conversation occurs. And so, but corruption, I would say, in its broadest form, is any effort to utilize systems of government and processes for some form of personal benefit. That's at its base. What constitutes personal benefit when we're talking about the political realm is itself ambiguous political benefit is personal benefit when you're talking about individual actors. So it, it, it's a, a key term to define, but it's a key term to define in each context in which we are talking about. Ed, I know you were talking a lot about, uh,
0: we were talking earlier about sort of whether there's a difference between just self-interested behavior and corrupt behavior. And And one of the things we talk about in the book is that there's very few checks on self-interested behavior for uh, a lot of people, but especially the big chief, who was the mayor. And when we talked in your office for the book, you had a great analogy, I think, for how city government functions. And I think you might, I think you talked about a solar system. You got yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson on us and started talking about <laughs> who's the sun and who's Saturn. And I was wondering if you could outline that because I think it's, it's a great
2: description. Sure, picture Chicago government, which which um, the body politic tends to think of, of as singular. As a kind of solar system. In fact, it's not singular. It's a sun um, around which a whole bunch of planetary bodies are circling. Each one of those planetary bodies is a separate component or unit of government with its own separately derived authority. Some of it from state law, some of it from municipal law, some of it from some combination of the two. And in Chicago, we have uh, we have the city of Chicago, the the corporation of the city of Chicago, which is the, the you know the eight hundred pound gorilla. But as separate bodies of government, we have the Chicago Public Schools, the Chicago Transit Authority, um, the Chicago Park District, and so on, Is a Chicago Housing Authority, and so on and so forth. Each one of them are separate bodies of government. Picture those bodies of government as planets circling the sun. The sun is the mayor. And whether or not the mayor actually has legal authority to direct the activity of each of those bodies, he exercises huge gravitational force on what they do and how they operate. And around each one of those bodies, or most of those bodies, Is a tiny little moon that circles that planet. And those are the IGs and the oversight. So what you really have is a unitary system in terms of the um, the consolidation of power and influence, but oversight is balkanized and broken up and separated. And so from the perspective of those who hold the power, there's the appearance of oversight and there's the appearance of a check, but in point of fact, it's nowhere near consonant with how the power is actually wielded.
0: Ed, you were talking about Los Angeles specifically having, Mm -hmm. we talk about New York in the book as a potential model, Department of Investigation there. It's one system, one standard. Everybody's under it, schools, police, fire, whatever. It's all under that department. But, Ed, I think you had a good point about L.A. Uh,
1: Yeah. So, in Los Angeles, they have a very robust police inspector general, Mm -hmm. and they report up to the police commission. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not as familiar with the remainder of the I.G., Effort, although I suspect they're, they're also planetary because they have an elected school board, so it wouldn't be under the uh, centralized DOE or DO, DOI. DOI. But what do you think about a robust IG? for the police that would be separate from the Department of Investigations.
2: So in New York, the, the newest body within DOI is the component that has consolidated and uh, dedicated oversight of the police department. Um, the NYPDIG is within DOI. Since the last time we all talked while you were working towards your book, Chicago, as a result of um, a whole series of events, has created a dedicated police oversight section. Within the Inspector General's office, and so it could be done as a separate body, could be done as part of you know an existing IG body, as long as it is appropriately resourced and and, and empowered. So there is not one right way or wrong way to do it. What uh, in the context of policing, uh, I will tell you that you know police departments do not, uh, while while, the, while they are sort of cultural islands and uh, and in many respects in major municipalities they are fortress entities they actually cannot operate um, separate and apart altogether from the rest of city government. The The Chicago Police Department requires um, the Office of Emergency Management and Communication, OEMC. It requires the Finance Department, the, higher, the, the Department of Human Resources. It links up with the Fire Department. It links up with the Chicago Department of Public Health, all of these things. And so there's actually a compelling a compelling reason for housing that dedicated oversight for a police department within the IG office that actually has oversight for all of the others because there's any number of things that span one department. I'm curious from your perspective, I, we
0: this is an evergreen podcast. We want it to be sort of a record of of the research in the book and the and the folks we spoke to for it. But right now obviously is one of the most incredible news stories of the last whatever, I don't know, 30 years in Chicago oversight the big fish, Ed Burke, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Joe, but he's been there for 50 years, I think. He was arraigned. Uh, he's out on, on bond being charged with shaking down an owner of a Burger King in Archer Heights, which I had the uh, good fortune of visiting. It's just like any other Burger King. It's maybe worse. I mean, there's nothing else around it. It's not a, fan, it's not a fantastic place to go visit. And it has,
2: it, has but, uh, one other, it has one other link to to contemporary Chicago history. It's, it's the location where Laquan, Laquan McDonald, McDonald was shot. Exactly, which is, was
0: hair-raising when I read that. And I'm curious, as you've observed the conversation around Burke, people saying, oh, well, we need new leadership in the 14th Ward. Oh, we just need new leadership on the finance committee. Oh, we should just not have people have outside employment. What do you think is missing in that conversation, and how have you observed it taking place?
2: What uh, so our office is part of the investigation that's ongoing, and what's been seen publicly with respect to Alderman Burke? Those are all that's only prelim a, a com- criminal complaint. It's not mm-hmm. even an indictment yet, but as is signaled by the affidavit in that complaint, it's part of a much larger investigation. So speaking strictly to the reaction mm-hmm. to that revelation and other revelations involving the chairman of the zoning committee yes. and, and so on and so forth, is what I'm observing is a bigger version of what we always see, which is reactionary incremental change at the margin. And what we endeavored to do is to address the very specific thing that has been revealed by that that corruption moment, rather than to step back and say, look, we've had countless cycles like this so let's look at the system overall holistically and 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 come to um a sort of a new paradigm as to how the council operates in relation to what we know to be the systemic weaknesses of the of the way that it is operated historically and so yeah you can swap out an individual but it's an individual operating within this um the, look chicago has um fifty one mayors, one big mayor and fifty little mayors, and those fifty little mayors are um supposed to be the legislators. What we need is one mayor and one legislature, right and that legislature really constituting a meaningful legislative oversight check, an accountability metric, a trans- uh, um, mechanism, a transparency mechanism for what's going on with respect to the mayor and the executive functions that he that he and someday she um holds that doesn't exist right now the committee structure is largely driven and controlled by the mayor himself when an alderman steps aside the person who who selects the next alderman to replace them if it's in, if it's if it's in the middle of a term is the mayor how those committees actually operate what gets moved through which committee largely at the influence of the mayor does the city council itself have its own independent legislative research branch that isn't followed by the mayor and largely controlled by the mayor's office. It does not. A few years ago, Alderman uh, Amea Pawar, who's now running for treasurer, um, spearheaded the creation of a council office of financial analysis that was supposed to function as uh, sort of an analog to the congressional budget office. how's that office uh, office. uh, looking right now? It, it 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 was it was situated in a way where any work that is done by that office has to be cleared through the chair of the budget committee and the finance committee. Finance committee chair was Alderman Burke, who just spoke of. The budget committee chair um, is someone who is there because of the mayor. So it's the mayor's proposals that need to be scored, it's the mayor's proposals that need to be analyzed. And the mayor oversees city council. He basically he, oversees he, city he oversees, council. I mean, directly. He's there. Yeah. Um we've talked at events
0: about I think when we were writing the book, at that time, in the last twenty-eight years, there had been twenty-eight aldermen appointed by the mayor. Yeah. and uh, it's imagine if that's how U.S. Congress worked—that every time some Congressperson wanted to retire, you had you had the executive uh, appoint that leadership. Could could they be an independent check? I wanted to get your thoughts on one of the things people have been really surprised about is that uh, it's a book that has the word Chicago, the, the phrase Chicago way in it, and that's associated with kind of a nihilistic view about. Corruption in the city, I think, and we looked at per capita corruption over the last ten years. When you look at northern northern Judi- federal judicial district in Illinois, number of public corruption convictions over the last ten years per hundred thousand people, we are behind Philadelphia, San Antonio, Austin, and Dallas. We're number five on the list. Um, we have about it's about four point two convictions per hundred thousand people. We are not a huge outlier. It seems there's lots of there's a few different issues with the way that that data is collected, but we're not some massive uh you know crazy outlier on overall corruption in recent history. Where we are is in city council. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot think of another city that has had so many I mean, we looked up and down uh, uh, all around on this, and we haven't seen a city council where so many of these people uh, who are elected for a legislative body. Are
2: convicted on corruption charges. So,
0: where what what do we look to for that? Is that all a consequence of of what you were just describing their responsibilities?
2: Um, I I I think it is. What and and some of this is on the population. I'm part of the population. I'm a resident of the city of Chicago. Um, I, I would say there's there's sort of two things. One is 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 the sort of the mechanical one, which is uh, the history and the culture uh, of Chicago has us looking to our aldermen as the person. To get things done on our block, um, in our back alley, um, and there are things that, in the ordinary course, in many other cities, are simply part of the executive branch, ordinary executive functions. And you are one of three million people who need these services. Um, but it's that sort of intercessionary role and the appearance of power held by the aldermen um, in in that in in in, in that hyper local way that leads us all to this kind of desire to have the aldermen actually act in ways that take them into this broker kind of arrangement um, and rather than simply good effective efficient um They're bottleneck, bureaucracy administrative and bottleneck they can they can be an administrative bottleneck well what you will tend to see is where there are cases of corruption and uh, concerns about corruption they utilize their positioning to be a bottleneck in order to secure for the corrupt ones, something of personal benefit to them to clear the bottleneck. They don't need to be there for most of what we're talking about at all. Mm-hmm.
0: And unfortunately, when you talk about professionalization, the staff that they do have are the ones who are actually the bot. They're the ones doing that stuff. Uh, they're not researching city issues. They're talking to the to constituents about complaints. So uh, right,
2: every every alderman, every alderman gets a budget every year um, uh, uh, from from the city's main budget. One part of the budget is for personnel. It, it staffs three positions. The other part is non-personnel. You could use it for personnel. Three positions, both for your, your substantive expertise and the things that you need to do as a legislator, but the other is to actually attend to constituent services, all this other stuff that we look for, to aldermen for. The reality is is that they do almost entirely constituent services and, it, and three, three employees are not enough to handle that as well as other responsibilities. The way that you get additional employees is um, three places. One, you use your campaign finance funds to hire mm-hmm. people. Um, and so now you're soliciting donations for the purpose of funding your, you know, your official right. responsibilities. Right. Second, Which come from people who largely depend on your decisions in that capacity. Absolutely. Yes. The second is um, you become a committee chair. And this goes to that, that sort, of, uh, sort of structural operational deficit of the city council performance deficit. And what committee chairs, most committees tend to do is they get a couple of positions, two, five positions um, that are staffed that are supposed to be devoted to the subject matter expertise of that, of that committee. They largely do constituent services. So the very kind of core building up of knowledge um, that's necessary for the body as a whole and is necessary for effective oversight doesn't occur. The third way, historically, until the present, has been to go to the chair of the finance committee and ask whether you could have um, uh, a couple of people sent your way, and those are generally people who've been hired by the chair of the finance committee that therefore allows the chair of the finance committee to pretty much know everything that's going on in all the places that his people have gone to, but in return for that um, provision of assistance, you're generally expected to to vote the party line as the chair of the finance committee says
1: so you, we were talking about corruption and it seems to me that corruption has a twin sister and it's a lack of transparency and it's said that you can't legislate morality can we legislate transparency or Does the IG office have to be our Department of Transparency?
2: Um, We absolutely can legislate transparency, and and you started out with asking me what my definition of corruption is. It's a huge term that people use differently. People, we don't have a a fixed definition of what transparency is for government bodies either. And uh, in the the most recent generation, Chicago's actually pretty good with the amount of, of data it puts out there with respect to various programs and operations. But largely, it's in the form of big data dumps that you have to be sophisticated with data to, to, to understand. Our office has recently put up an information portal where um, uh, built on a Tableau platform that, 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 that gives dashboards that the public actually can change the filters on, very, uh, very intuitive, to understand how certain operations or aspects of operations or resources uh, exist and operate in their ward, in their neighborhood, in, in, in a police district, and so on and so forth. But to the issue of transparency is, you're right, you can't legislate morality, but what you can legislate are is professionalism, standards of professionalism, and the amount of information that needs to be put out into the public domain. And you can legislate the specific form and standard of that information that is put out into the public domain. You can legislate things like the requirement for there to be subject matter hearings on certain things on a regular basis, utilizing that, 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 that city council committee structure, and so on and so forth. The fact of the matter is, is in the city of Chicago with the city council, the most, almost the only, but certainly the most meaningful discussion about what is going on in city operations is during the budget hearings, which happen once a year in a really compressed cycle in October. And a lot of
0: aldermen don't even show up for those. I yeah, mean, that's, it, those aren't extraordinarily even well attended. They, <laughs> the
2: they, it depends on the time of day. Yeah, exactly. it depends on who's who's who the witness is. But, mm-hmm. but 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 yeah. But that's not the way that you actually dig into the details. But uh, but but to your question, yeah, you can legislate professionalism. You can uh, you can legislate standards of transparency um, uh, in all sorts of respects, and we ought to be doing that.
0: I'm curious. We looked at the uh, the inspector general model in terms of the powers that are granted to your office. We aren't even we aren't an outlier on that. It's not like you're completely handcuffed in, in the work not that you all. do. You guys have a lot of responsibility, and you go about your investigations in a thorough way. There are a couple things, though. One of them was just addressed. You guys did not have oversight over the workers' compensation program in the finance committee. That was changed post Burke. Another thing is that we talk about in the book is the relationship with the city law department. And you look at a, a place like Los Angeles, Ed and I talk a lot about what elected officials should we have in Chicago that are actually meaningful. Right now we have the mayor and the other two citywide elected officials, the clerk and the treasurer, are largely powerless offices. Do you think, what, what do you think uh, could be the value of something like an elected city attorney? And if not an elected city attorney, how,
2: how could the, the city law department be a little bit more transparent and accountable? I, I worked for many years as a federal prosecutor, and in in the federal system, um, uh, uh, case law has evolved in a way that defines the role of a government attorney differently from the way they operate at the local level. And federal courts have said that government attorneys can't hide behind the attorney-client privilege and the attorney work-product doctrine to the extent that it, that operates in the private sector, because their client is the public, and they're supposed to be working for the public good, which Significantly shrinks the quantum of information that can be kept behind sort of the legal wall. That hasn't filtered down, or at least it's filtered down in very variable ways across the country. And Chicago still is very much the old school model, so that has to happen. But that is only going to happen uh, on the basis of some of these transparency, possible legislation, and, and 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 rulings. But to your question about what we might do differently, would an elected um, city attorney change things? I, I look to New York, and in New York there is there is an elected public advocate, um, and there is an elected comptroller. And for the comptroller's office, the settlement of any claim by the city itself needs to first go to the independently elected comptroller for an analysis, um, as to sort of front end analysis as to the merits, and try to dispose of it before. uh, The the, the actors under the mayor um, and the folks with some sort of skin in the game as to the outcome, because they're running the departments from which the claim originated, can can uh, can then engage the matter. Which is the opposite of how Chicago. I mean, it's completely completely, goes straight to the law department, and the mayor's interests
0: are. Or dominate that, rather yeah. And than and and
2: else. and yeah. and look for 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 for, the, for those listening, it, it, you know, in, in agreeing with that, it, it, that's not to say that there aren't good public servants all the way up and down the law department. But ultimately, the the history and the dynamics of the situation are that when the mayor cares about something, the law department is the mayor's lawyer, not the public's lawyer, and that's something that we really need to push into.
1: So currently you are appointed your position is appointed by the mayor correct if we did have a separate law department or some other accommodation would it be better for the IG to report to the elected city attorney or some other mechanism so it is even more divorced from the mayor
2: so it so a couple of things it it it's fairly standard across the country including at, at, at where the gold standard is the federal government for the appointment to be made by a political actor right um, here in Chicago, um, uh, uh, the evolution of the IG ordinance um, has a process by which there's to be an independent committee that receives and vets applicants, gives a short list to the mayor, the mayor gets to make a selection, and then that goes to the city council. If the city council was the effective check it ought to be, that person would go undergo a real rigorous hearing. But there is a hearing and uh, so there, there is a process that assures that it, we at least are picking someone who is professional, right? Who does not have an undue number of ties to those with the vested interests and who, who, who hold the power. Um, um, so, would we be better? Um, I don't know. I think we're pretty well situated, and we're we're certainly well situated relative to national standards. Um, the question really to me comes to, comes down to two things, the actual authority and the independence, structural independence that the IG has and whether or not the IG uses that. And that somewhat connects up to your earlier question about transparency. Does the IGs work in the public domain? Can the public scrutinize what's going on? There's always the sort of the existential question, who oversees the overseer, right? That can only be measured by transparency and accountability reflected in the product, the work product of the IG, an IG that you don't know, that you never hear from, whose work you never actually see in the public domain. That's an IG that probably you should be concerned about.
1: You have reports that you've written that are they the government doesn't allow to be released, and so that's a constraint even for a vigorous uh, and responsible IG like yourself, right? Who
0: has advocated for the, the office to be required to release those things, what it, and that's now in city code, right? I what, mean, it wasn't what, the case before. We,
2: we, we haven't advocated for the office to release all of its investigative reports. So we, we 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 release we release full reports on everything that is not investigative, and that's a lot of our work. As for investigative matters. You know, there's 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 pros and cons for um, the release um, or what form of release. And what we do, what, what the law says that we may do and that we do do is to, on a quarterly basis, um, issue sort of synopses of concluded matters. But the full reports aren't issued. And there's some good reason for that at times, because those full reports list the names of witnesses and the names of people who ultimately were connected to something but found not to have engaged in any form of misconduct. And so you're dragging them into this, in, into, into public space in the context of something that's unseemly. So there's reasons for some degree of, let's call it, non-transparency or, 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 or sort of filtered transparency. What I've raised is um, there are certain matters of great public interest and certain matters certainly relating to the police department which there's important policy and public interest reasons for a full disclosure. And so what I've advocated for is the release of our reports, investigative reports concerning the investigation of the police department's handling of the Laquan McDonald investigation. And there is an anomaly in that if that investigation was done by another investigative component of the city with respect to the police department, COPA, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, those reports would have been public. But our ordinance does not allow us to make them public. There at least should be consistency across the board. Everywhere there's not consistency, the public doubts, we're trying to overcome the public doubt. Um, And so, you know, it's a balancing act. But as a former prosecutor, I'll tell you there's very good reasons for government
1: secrecy in some contexts. Another question that I have. In uh, writing our book, we looked at the top 15 cities in the United States by population. And one dynamic that we've seen is that some of these are are high-growth cities that were once small towns, and they had a city manager form of government, but now they're growing up. And so, so many of these larger cities have a city manager form of government. Tell us about the oversight function in a city manager environment, and by the same token, should larger cities, even Chicago, consider some version of a city manager form of government.
2: Well, wow, I've never thought about that. Um, that's a that, that that's a tough question. Um, and I think um I, I would actually tie the merits of um that notion in any particular city on the basis of what form of elected government that we have and how the city manager is selected and uh and so if we really do have uh a, let's say a you know a a, a vigorous um uh, uh a a a, a, a an elected body with whose, whose elections are secured through public financing of elections so that it it's not already baked into special interests that engage um fully in active regularly scheduled public hearings on all matters, uh, maybe as a matter of ordinance or law required to um, on, on various topics, that is then selecting the city manager, I would, I would say, great. Um, what we have is some degree of electoral accountability, some degree of separation um, that exists for the city manager that would have to be selected on the basis of really rigorous professional qualifications, and then the activities of that city manager then having to be reported publicly into this elect- electorally accountable body. How that works in a huge city, I don't know. I, I, I And I don't know enough, you guys are the experts, but I, I don't know at what point the incidence of city manager models sort of drop off in terms of size of population of a municipality. Mm-hmm the question of who
0: how that official is selected is definitely a good one but we see we talk about this in the financial oversight chapter but i think it has implications for corruption in top 5 cities chicago's the only one that doesn't have an independently elected controller or or manager mm-hmm. so you have again someone who is able to pursue his or her his or her self interest when it comes to budgetary matters which of course we know contracts are so huge when it comes to these things they're really steering citywide decisions and, and, and contracts and collective bargaining agreements, things of that nature, with no check on you know the costs of those things or the the oversight of that being a, a deliberative process rather than a hastily made decision. So I think that your your point is a, definitely a good one.
2: But that having having those separately a separately elected comptroller, a separately elected public advocate, say if we're talking about New York, that becomes the loyal opposition. And there is that sort of uh, independent check. The the complication tends to come in those places as well as that people run for those offices as a prelude to running for mayor. Mm. And so everything is politicized in all directions, but at least we get the benefit of the tension of the engagement and the oversight.
0: Tension is key. And hopefully this interview wasn't too tense for you. We really appreciate you coming in. Inspector General Joe Ferguson, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for your book. So, Austin, now that we've chatted a little bit about corruption and got a lot of great insight from Inspector General Ferguson, what can we do about this? What are the specific actions that the city can take to fight corruption and put it put us uh, not fifth among the major cities, but dead last in corruption per capita?
0: Well, I don't think what... what Uh, Inspector General Ferguson said, I think points to what we, we talk about in the book, which is that it's not going to be more ethics training. It's not going to be changing out who the finance committee chair is. It needs to be aldermen going from ward bosses and mini mayors to true citywide legislators. And that has to happen, which we will talk about in another episode, through governance reform. And that must come through something like a true city charter, a true city constitution. Beyond that, we spoke a little bit with Inspector General Ferguson about the, the New York Department of Investigations, which is a centralized oversight body, whereas in Chicago, you have separate, I believe five at present, different inspector generals, all with different standards, all with different funding mechanisms. Ferguson's office is by far the biggest and having the most power. The city should think about consolidating those because, the, as he said, the, the power is centralized in the mayor's office, but the power is is balkanized. So how do we address that in our oversight? Why can't our oversight also be powerful and centralized overseeing all of these entities? But we will talk more about this and many more more topics around city governance in upcoming episodes. We have great guests lined up. So subscribe and thank you for listening to the New Chicago Way
2: podcast.